Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hear my words and bear witness to my vow. Night gathers and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the shield that guards the realm of men. I pledge my life and honor to the night's watch. For this night, and all the nights to come. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Game of Thrones, an unofficial Game of Thrones podcast from Vanity Fair. I am senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Every week we break down the latest episode of Game of Thrones as well as talk to some people who were involved in said episode. This week we will be talking to some of the VFX people, the clever VFX people who put together this whole big battle episode uh, that involved dragons and giants and little girls, oh my. Um, but yeah, before we get into that, we will be breaking down Season 8, Episode 3, The Long Night, which is written by Weiss and Benioff and directed by... Miguel Sapochnik. This is the battle episode that they spent over 50 nights shooting. Um, and it's sort of all there on the screen. There it is. Everyone looks really tired and, and weary and battle worn from, from having done this. Um, what we like to do here on Still Watching is sort of hand out a few little awards before we talk generally about the episode. First, I do a quick little recap of the episode. I think this one's like really quick one. It's just a two word recap, which is winter fell, right? Winter fell at winter yeah. fell <laughs> at long last. <laughs> um, yeah. RIP the Night King. All right. Uh, and then we want to hand out our obvious MVP awards. Uh, this is sort of a one, two punch. My obvious MVP is Melisandra who like shows up like the like, glamorous messy bitch she is loves an entrance lights up the whole episode like 
literally lights up the episode. Like, this episode is very dark and hard to see, except for the times when Melisandre decides to light it all up for us. So, Melisandre, and then, and then speaking some words of encouragement for people. So, Richard, who is your obvious MVP of the episode? Well, the person she spoke the most words of encouragement to, Arya. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Arya gets our big surprise move at the end of the episode. Um, then we're going to do the sneaky MVP, and this is also related to Melisandre. I'm going to give it out to the people who deal with the pyrotechnics. I know that at least one of those people is uh, Sam Conway, who we talked for um, uh, on a previous episode of Still Watching. We talked to him about all the people he lit on fire for the episode Spoils of War that was in uh, season seven. And uh, so not as many people on fire, but a lot more stuff on fire in this episode. And like the the shot of the charging Dothraki um, with their Arx, um on fire, like they definitely, there were definitely just like a bunch of people on horses with things on fire. Like that wasn't CG. That was definitely real fire. And I was deeply impressed by that. So um, hats off to the pyrotechnics. Who is your sneaky MVP, Richard? Well, it's hard to argue with that, but I guess, you know, uh, as a sort of like rest in power, I'll go with uh, the little the little lady who took down a big giant Leanna Mormont, <laughs> poor thing. The tiny bear cub mm-hmm. uh, with the deadly aim. It's true. Um, all right. And then we want to pick out our favorite quote. I think we're both going to be quoting the only person who said anything interesting this episode that wasn't like, run, open the door, shut the door, whatever. Um and yeah, so this one goes out to you, Melisandre. It goes like this. I'll be dead before the dawn. Uh, which is sort of how I was feeling last night as I was writing all <laughs> the night about Game of Thrones. Richard, what is your, what is your quote? Well, I'm going to give it to my MVP, Arya, and just say, not today. Nice. Nice. Very nice. All right. Um, and then, and then we want to talk about our best dressed. This is a, this is a tough episode to pick because everyone is like dressed for battle. John, for some reason, not wearing any armor, uh, in the biggest fight of his life, I would say. He's just wearing some nice leathers. So that's an interesting choice. Uh, Daenerys also chose to stick with her like usual winter wear. Uh, no, no armor for, for our lady, our mother of dragons. Um, but I think the best dress in terms of like coordinated look has to be, um, the White Walker bros, especially that shot where they're like walking out of the, um, the firelit fog in like full boy band formation, mm-hmm. uh, with their like dramatic shoulder pads and everything sort of looking, looking just clean and put together. So it's functional, but it's fashion. Uh, who is your best dress, Richard? Yeah, I mean, that was very Billboard Music Awards, like, 1999, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I appreciated it. Um, I was going to say that um, the, the zombie lady that Arya stabs in the neck was, was was looking pretty good in her tatters, but it just popped in my head. I'm giving best dress to whatever loungewear Cersei was wearing for this whole episode. <laughs> I'm sure it was silky and, like, maybe kind of embroidered, and, yeah, I'm sure it was lovely. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. 
Um, all right. And then uh, finally, we want to shout out our favorite, like, ship of the episode, two characters or a character and an animate object that we are, like, rooting for to be together. My ship is actually the same this week as it was last week, which it goes to, uh, Brian and Jamie who fought side by side. They are a few, uh, among a few characters who, like, reasonably should not have survived this episode. Somehow did. But there was at least one shot of them fighting back to back, which gave me like Kylo Ren Ray from Star Wars feelings. And, um, I thought it looked great. So I appreciated all the times that they killed zombies for each other. Um, is what I will say. Uh, Richard, who, who are you shipping this week? Well, we didn't really see them kill anyone together, but I did feel a similar stirring, I have to say, with um, Tyrion and Sansa because they, they had that great moment where they pulled out their knives and it was like, are they going to kill themselves? Like, what, what, then it was, but it was like, well, here we are. We've been through a lot together. Let's, you know, make one last stand or so they thought. Um, I don't know. It was a nice moment. And the music, um, as ever, was was beautiful in that part. Yeah, Ramin Javadi really did it. Um, in a previous episode of the podcast, he was talking about how um, my favorite piece of his music before this is called, um, uh, The Light of the Seven, which is from the, um, episode The Winds of Winter. And that is the first time he had ever used piano on Game of Thrones. And I don't think he'd used it since until this episode. So it really mm-hmm. stands out because you're not used to hearing piano on the soundtrack, uh, for Game of Thrones. And since he's only used it twice. And so, yeah. Uh, and I believe this track is called the, like, the main track that plays this episode is called the, I believe it's called The Night King and it is on, uh, Spotify. So, um, you can listen to that right now. Well, not right now. You're going to listen to us and then you can listen to it. Um, <clears throat> all right. So let's talk about this episode and I will just give you my, my sort of brief thoughts about it before I hear yours, which is that it like, it works well in sections. Um, but sort of like the beyond the wall episode, uh, last season where they all went like, you know, hunting for zombies uh, in the North, it doesn't really hang together logically. Um, if you sort of, try to scrutinize it and maybe I shouldn't try to scrutinize it but that's literally my job and so like when re-watching the episode I was like wait why did he and what and where did she and why did that happen and it doesn't there's a part where and this is the part that sticks with me most and I don't know why there's a part where Jon Snow just like parks his dragon on a rampart of Winterfell and just like sits there for like 20 minutes of the battle and I don't understand why and so like it's stuff like that where like I understand they were juggling a lot of elements but maybe that means they bit off like a little more than they could chew because it just, it felt, um, yeah, like it doesn't hang together logically. And then also just as many people pointed out, it was hard to see what was going on a lot of the times. And so you're just like, you're like, did a favorite character die? I don't, I honestly don't know. So, uh, Richard, but I did love like the big moment at the end. I did really like that. Uh, so Richard, what did you think of this episode? Yeah, it was something where I was watching with friends and we were like dead silent the whole time, like totally sitting on the edge of our seats. Um, I thought there were moments that were beautifully directed. Um, and, you know, just kind of stunning to, to, to be watching that and be like, well, this is television. I mean, you know, look at what television looks like now. Um, so yeah, that all, but like the more I thought about it after my friends left and I thought about recording this episode with you this morning, like I was like, hmm, well that didn't quite work and that doesn't make any sense. And actually the more I think about it, I really don't like the ending. Okay. Talk to me about why you don't like the ending. Well, I think, you know, this is a sentiment that was expressed on Twitter a lot. And I know that Martin has always said that he's more interested in the kind of dynastic power struggles than he is in this kind of supernatural war against good and evil. But the show didn't seem that way. I mean, the show really like, you know, 
spoke about the kind of winter is coming night king uh, you know um approach as like the biggest existential thing ever and then to have it really only addressed in one episode to have cersei be proven completely right to not get involved you know um i'm just kind of like well this all feels a bit like a you know and there's three more episodes to go what will it be like i just feel like the stakes of the battle are going to feel so much lower um when it's just the humans I like I'll I'll admit that I'm excited for the return to politicking because that's mm-hmm. the part of Game of Thrones that I really like. At the same like time, I don't know that I can fathom how that is going to fill three supersized episodes, given like how much story we have left. Given that it's Cersei who we've decided is bad. Against a bunch of our heroes who I guess are infighting. And, the, and I think the thing that I'm dreading a little bit is that, like, I don't think all the infighting is believable. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, I, I, and once again, I'm assuming, like, m- m- you know, I don't know what happens for the most part in the last three episodes of Game of Thrones. And so, like, maybe I should just have more faith that they will be able to deliver something that's really interesting. And I have been saying, like, all along, I think the Night King is a really boring villain. <laughs> I don't really want to watch them fight the Night King for like the final season. Uh, so I got my wish. So I feel like I can't, you know, but I, I, I share some of that like, uh, unease. I'm like a little yeah. uneasy about it, but at the same time, I'm like, well, maybe, you know, I, I just, I loved last week's episode and mm-hmm. if, which was conversations in rooms, essentially, right? If there is more of that going forward, but it has to do with like politicking and humans desires for power and stuff like that, like that is interesting to me. Um, I'm just worried that, that that is, I don't know. We've still got two live dragons that, you know, yeah. we're going to have like another battle or something like that. I, I don't know. Yeah. But it's also just like, you know, I, I, I agree with you that the Night King was kind of a boring villain because anyone who's that all powerful, that sort of relentless, like it's just like, it, it's, it's not very compelling episode after episode, but what was compelling was this sort of supernatural stuff surrounding him, the sense of like a, like a universe or at least a continent that's sort of out of, out of supernatural balance and that something needs to be restored and all this prophecy about like, you know, ice and fire coming together. And it gave the union or the eventual discord between Danny and John a sort of like really like mythic weight to it. And now all of that magic stuff, as far as I can tell, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, is sort of done or settled. And so it's like, oh, so now it's just like a guy who's sleeping with his aunt and like, you know, it just, it, it like, I thought that there was going to be some, some reason they were pulled together, you know, uh, and they didn't even really have much to do with the victory over the winter, you know, in the end. So it just kind of rendered John and Danny's whole kind of big import, self-important arc sort of moot in a way. Um, that said, you know, I was happy that Arya got her big moment. I mean, I, you know, like, I, I feel conflicted about the ending, I guess. But like, like you said, I feel really uneasy about what the hell the next three plus hours is going to be. Yeah, I mean, uh, we shall see. And maybe, maybe it will absolutely surprise us and knock our socks off. Um, I, I will say that I, there, there's a part of me that likes this move here because mm-hmm. um, it's so 
let's kill Ned Stark in episode nine of season one. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's what it feels like. Uh, it yeah. feels like you think this is the end game, but it's not. And it also makes, makes me, I mean, and I say that in a way that it makes me look like such a fool because I've been railing against, uh, this social media, uh, hashtag that HBO has been using for the throne. And I'm like, you idiots. It doesn't matter. The throne is not the point anymore. And I'm like, oh, guess the throne's back on the table. Yeah. My bad. Always, um, always trust the hashtag. <laughs> I know. Follow the hashtag. So anyway, uh, that's my fault, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, it's interesting. It's interesting for Lena Headey to have sat out two full episodes of the final season of Game of Thrones. That's kind of fascinating. So I feel like they must have some really fun stuff for her to do. But I don't know where she yeah. modulates from well, here, you know? Well, that's, an- that's another thing is like, I don't know if I feel comfortable having her positioned as the ultimate villain. You know, like, I don't really think I, maybe that's not what they're doing. And I'm just basing this off a very vague, you know, tri- um, preview for the next episode. But like, she's kind of the last one to go, you know, like, she's the last kind of opposition, supposedly to this kind of uneasy alliance, uh, you know, in the north. Um and it's like, well, okay, like, is, is that really what Cersei's character arc has been? Are we supposed to think that she's so wicked? And, you know, I just don't know that that's really where she was a season ago, you know, um, at least in my estimation. But, you know, again, this is the kind of thing when shows start to wrap up, you know, sometimes you're just like, oh, the people making this show think it's a different thing than I think it is, you know? Uh, and that's always interesting and a little disillusioning sometimes, but like, you kind of have to be like, well, I mean, if this is what the, this is the show that they always felt they were, they were making, then okay, then I'll just have to kind of watch it and, and, uh, and accept it as that. But also, like, you know, it's possible we, you and I are making the wrong assumptions about what the final three episodes will, True. you know. And, True. um, <clears throat> what's interesting is that I think something that, that I found kind of fascinating is what they're trying to position for Daenerys. Because if you think about, um, the fact that she, they've, um, my friend Kim Renfro did a really good, um, piece about this at Business Insider, but she was talking about, um, how this season has done a lot to strip away the things that Daenerys had to rely on. Like, um, <clears throat> she comes to the North. She's the outsider, right? She's a little bit on the back foot already. Um, her newfound boyfriend is now, I guess, her competition, but also related to her. And so she's like feeling distance from him. Uh, she lost her entire Dothraki horde. Uh, in a very problematic opening salvo of the episode. Um, she lost a lot of her unsullied. Grey Room and Masande are like, should we just leave? Like, they just want to go, right? Uh, and then she lost Jorah. And so it's like, what, Tyrion and Varit? Like, her team is so That's small true. now. And, and yeah. like, her dragons are there, but they're like, one of them super wounded. And so like, this idea that, <clears throat> what will Daenerys do? Having come to Westeros with so much power, what will she do now? Now that she has to rely on the, this alliance of the North, now that this alliance of the North isn't going as well as she had hoped. I don't really b- buy this whole like John and Daenerys in competition for the throne because like John deeply doesn't care. And so that dynamic doesn't right. work. But the dynamic of like, Daenerys coming in being like, okay, I got this and I got the guy in the north to bend the knee. And so I got this. I, I'm, I'm doing it. And then it's all kind of falling apart around her. Mm-hmm. I think is potentially very interesting, you know, but yeah. I, I, I don't know exactly how it's going to play out. Um, can we talk about the Dothraki thing? Because, um, I thought that shot was exquisite. I mean, and, 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 and telling a sort of horrifying 
little story with just the use of black and, and, and like little dots of light, I thought was, you know, beautifully done. I loved done. it. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, really striking like artistry there. Um, and you got to think that like when Sapochny came up, that he was like, Oh my God, this is going to be so cool. You know, yeah. but, um, that said, A, do I believe that every single Dothraki would die while Samuel Tarly lived? <laughs> throughout that whole ordeal i don't uh also i think i mean you said they were problematic are you kind of referring to the fact that they sent this horde of people of color kind of into the front lines to die first yeah i mean the dothraki screamers are going to be like the the most likely to go first though i don't know why they charged and didn't wait for the dead to come to them i don't know battle tactics though but um but yeah daenerys's uh, army is the army of color. <laughs> and so if you have like operation get behind the Dothraki, I mean, it just looks like it just yeah. doesn't look great. That being said, I completely agree with you. I think the light their Arux and then have them disappear into the darkness and have everyone sort of like watch and realize what's happening in horror. And then just like watch the darkness, but hear the army of the dead coming and all of that. Like I thought that was tremendous. Um, it was just like, I, I don't blame anyone who's a little like, um, but okay. Why is Samuel Tarly still alive? Why? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's you know, maybe that's something we could also talk about in this is that, you know, the odds makers, including myself and, and you, I believe, were, were, were really kind of prepping. And we talked about it in the last week's episode of this podcast, like, okay, like X major character is going to die and, you know, and, and, or Y character is going to die. And like really only Theon of the major character. I mean, I guess Jorah, you could argue, but like, you know, Leanna Mormont, like, Beric Dondarrion, like, okay, like, those were characters that people liked. They were fan faves, maybe, but, like, they weren't significant to the broader story. And I just feel like that also felt like a cop-out, especially when, like, I mean, under the sort of, you know, full-throated direction of Spachnik, like, there were moments in, in, in the siege of Winterfell that were, like, excruciating to watch because it was this, like, full of dread and just, like, it seemed so helpless and impossible. And, you know, they're, like, zombies crawling all over everything and you're telling me that none of the major characters died during that you know yeah i know i completely agree like i this battle had more casualties than the last few like i was irritated by the lack of deaths and beyond the wall when like just uh thor's mirror died and i was irritated by the lack of casualty and spoils of war when like just some tarleys died and i was irritated by the lack of casualties in battle of the bastards when like sure ramsey died but like no one fighting for the good guys died that we cared about. Like, I mean, one won the giant, I guess. So I, you know, I was looking forward to this battle being something that they were like, okay, we're really going to, we're going to do it. We're going to like more realistically kill some of your faves. And like, yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't gloss over the fact that Theon Greyjoy and Jorah Mormont died though. I mean, I think, I think part of where we trip ourselves up is like we spent so there was just one million articles on the internet of like who's gonna die. So we just like went to these extremes, extremes and like processed like all of our grief about all these people like getting ready to lose everyone. And then it was like actually fairly minimal. I, I mean, mm-hmm. and, and like mm-hmm. especially, especially when like why is the Sam thing really bothers me? Cause I love Sam as a hero. I love like a, round bookish indoor cat hero i love him but like he had no business out on the fighting lines if he wasn't gonna like display any fighting skills and we just see him swallowed up by like zombies out zombie horde after zombie horde and like somehow still being alive there's one point when john just like runs past and he's like i don't have time for your shit samuel tarley like you're on the ground again covered in zombies like save yourself or get in the crypts where you belong you know um 
Ed Tuller didn't die for that. Anyway, but yeah, there's, there's this one part where they're all, they all go up on the ramparts, right? And, um, uh, or the wall, whatever. I don't, maybe I have the naming of castle parts wrong, but they're all up there and it's like every single, like, um, window up there, I think they're called Marins, but every single one has like a fave in it. It's like, there's Gendry, there's Jamie, there's Brienne, yeah. there's Pod, there's blah, blah, blah. They're all ready to like take on these zombies that are about to swarm over them. And every single one of them is fine. And I'm like, okay. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. And it's like, I'm sure the, I'm sure the writer's like, what more do you want? We killed Theon Greyjoy. And I'm like, yeah, that was, I mean, honestly, it was, that's a part that's, the most emotional part of the episode for me is the death of the angry Greyjoy, even though it was hugely telegraphed, even though it was hugely drawn out. Um, even I, though it was two minutes before Arya killed the Night King and you're kind of like, oh, Theon, if you had just run the other direction, you might have lived. <laughs> but like, there's just something about Alfie Allen's face that like really gets me every time. So it worked for me. But, um, but yeah, I get it. I don't know. It's just like, there's a lot of stuff that, that just doesn't, make any sense if you chew over it but like visually very ambitious and um you know they really they really swung for it and yeah i mean i I, like i said you know to to retread old territory i i share your unease uh about what the next three episodes are going to be but i i like the the like bravery of this move yeah, I mean, if nothing else, it will be interesting, and maybe it will be nice to see the show settle back down into the scale that it first was when it's, you know, went for the first few seasons, when it really was just about these people, um, kind of struggling, uh, with each other for a throne that increasingly feels t- like it means less and less. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what this, what damage this battle does to them. Like, like, Daenerys yeah. is, is the person who lost the most in this battle, right? That's accurate to say. Right. Oh no, absolutely. I think your assessment of like, yeah, just exactly all that she lost. Like she's, she's, uh, yeah, she's, she's in trouble if, if she's going to kind of splinter away from the rest of these people. So yeah, I mean, and that's, an, that's an interesting thing to me is like when thinking about who might die in this episode, I was just sort of thinking, um, in terms of grief, grief calculus, like what would be, what would impact people the hardest? And that's why, you know, like, that's why I thought someone like Tormund would die so that John would really feel the loss of something. But like, you know, yeah, John liked Ed, but like, not, you know, I don't know, not that much. So like, I don't know, I don't know that John is really, he's going to feel bad for Daenerys that she lost Jorah, but like, John doesn't really have like stakes in this. And then like, you know, the Stark sisters are just going to be like, yeah, guess what? We, we did it again. We rule. So I, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I don't know how it's all going to go, but it's going to, it's going to be fascinating to see, uh, what comes from this. And I'm still waiting for my guy Varys. I mean, this, this is the interesting thing is like when Littlefinger died at the end of last season, my whole thought process around that was like, yeah, because that's, this is the death of a certain kind of story. This is the death of politicking in Game of Thrones and now we're in something there's no room for a little finger in what the show is about to be. And then I was wrong <laughs> because mm-hmm. we're back to politicking mm-hmm. which is which makes me glad that Varys is still here because this is where Varys shines. And so like um Conlithil has had very little to do. He did okay in the crypts uh quipping a little bit or whatever, but like I'm really hoping that my guy Varys has more to do um as we go. Yeah. Let's put him on the throne. Why not? Yeah, Varys, Varys for the throne. All right. Well, uh, is there anything else we want to chat about? 
Um, no, I feel like that pretty much covered it. I don't mean to be too negative on the episode. I just was, it's just the more I think about it, the more I'm like, hmm. But, you know, yeah. in the moment, it was like gripping television. No, I was, I was like completely in it when I, mean, I was I cheered. in it. I cheered when Arya, you know, <clears throat> stabbed the king. And like, maybe if you just like, yeah, if you just watch it once, like, and cheer and like are in the cheering mood, then like, I, I can see this being like a great, um, episode of television to like watch with your friends on the couch or like whatever. Uh, if you're like us and you have to process back through an episode because it's your job, I don't think this really holds together. So mm-hmm. that's sort of my assessment of it. Um, all right. Well, um, I think we both agree though that the episode, like the special effects looked amazing. And so Incredible. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to, uh, Joe Bauer and Steve Kolbeck who worked on the VFX for the long night. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake at The New Yorker, to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. joined today by visual effects producer steve kolbeck and visual effects supervisor joe bauer thank you guys so much for joining us i really appreciate it absolutely glad to be here it's our pleasure (laughs) um can you guys run down for us really quickly what the difference is between a visual effects producer and a visual effects supervisor if you use uh, filmmaking as the metaphor for it all joe is the director and i'm the producer so uh i'm responsible for uh Air traffic control, logistics, schedule, money, and uh, putting uh, boots on the ground. And Joe is responsible for uh, all things creative and uh, some methodology. And methodology. And uh, together we uh, we trade hats occasionally, uh, but uh, Joe is the uh, is the vision behind it all. The method means. Uh, Emotional, psychological encouragement, and the uh, and the maker of things happening. I love that. Um, when I was talking to Sam Conway a couple weeks ago, he said, "You know, it all starts where you guys sit down and you look at the scripts and you decide sort of what's going to be practical, what's going to be digital." How did you all react when you saw what was on the page for this episode? Um, <laughs> we, we sat in silence, much like we're doing now. Um, <laughs> No, I mean the 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 thing about this uh, this series is that it's been sort of an ideal rollout of at least in our world, and I think hopefully in, in the other departments as well. But um, you know we've we've been challenged to invent things every year to to meet the needs of the words on the page and uh, drawing from our own 
experience in the business and doing this work. Um, and also with, as the show's gotten more popular, uh, we've gotten access to some really, really all of the A-list talent that this industry uh, provides. So, um, you know, so in the in season three, is the, the first time we burned someone with real fire, and obviously not really burning them, but a stunt guy, one guy, uh, by season five, uh, we had the, the flamethrower on a motion control crane in, in Spain, and we burned 20 guys. Uh, you know, every year, it's, you know, and the first time we did the skeletal whites, we did like five of them. And this last, right. uh, for, uh, you know, season eight, as you saw last night, we did, you know, tens of thousands. So uh, the rollout of the, the asks for season eight um, has been sort of long in coming. And so we know how to do it. It just becomes a logistical question of the of volume, really. Every uh, every season, um, we generally start with an outline that's usually over 100 pages. And, uh, you know, you scan through. And, and like all production personnel, you read through it for, you know, what are your parts? And, you know, you bullshit, bullshit, bullshit me, bullshit me, bullshit me. And... Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's um, it's always been, you know, you read through it and you go, oh, my God, how are we possibly going to do this? And uh, and this year was, no, really, how are we possibly going to do this? And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, one of our colleagues, Chris Newman, um, who's uh, who's been heavily responsible for a lot of the organization and scheduling of it all, you know, he said, hey, you know, even the best potato peeler in the world peels them one at a time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as, <laughs> as the, uh, you know, as the pressure mounted and, uh, and we knew what we were getting in for, we just, you know, broke it down. We made our lists and, uh, you know, we, we start with uh, in all the same typical ways. And uh, we had a massive team um, working with us on the ground uh, doing previs, which started for uh, the episode three back in July of 2017. Um, and uh, and the, that team from a company called The Third Floor has been our sort of rock and uh, ace in the hole. Uh, for the last several years, and you just break the shots down and get them into a creative place where everybody's happy with the uh, shape and the uh, look of the scene, and then uh, and then it's all right. What does this shot need? And you know, it's a it's an immense playbook that Joe and the team put together. Yeah, it's uh, uh, it's basically reverse engineering the shots that everyone's happy with. You know, and in some cases, many cases, the first unit. Not on this show, but in general, the first unit would go out and shoot a bunch of stuff, and then it would go into the computers, and everything would be filled in with CG, and that's a, a becoming a tried and true method. But but uh, this is such a the, the look of this show is so low tech that um, that we're afraid that if we went directly to CG that we would never meld successfully with the photography. So uh, in the art direction, just the feel of the show. So uh, production allowed us increasingly over the seasons to shoot more and more practical elements that would then be nested within the digital work so that as your eyes watching different parts of the screen, you recognize things that are photographed and it sort of grounds the, the digital work. And that's been sort of the secret of our success. And a, and a bit of our signature, Joe's signature, is 
um, actually shooting things. And wherever possible, if anything can be shot, might be shot, would be shot, we shot it. And, yeah. and the beauty of having that material in hand is that it's organic, it's real, and it's authentic. And, uh, and then the parts that you need to fake kind of nest in around it. Um, you know, they need to be better when they're, when they're, when they're needing to be CG because they're also, you know, fitting in with reality and that reality also helps ground it. So, you know, going back to season five, when we plop down a dragon in the middle of a, of a fighting pit in, uh, you know, Joe had the, uh, great outlandish and completely psychotic idea of animating the dragons first and, putting a flamethrower on a, on a techno dolly. And, you know, it, it was real and it, it fit in the dragon's mouth and it really blasted the stunties. And, you know, all of that part was already in camera, you know, when we walked off to the floor, but until that point, you know, all the jaws that were dropping were the producers and the director and, and you know, but not stunts. <laughs> not stunts, interestingly enough, who really welcomed the, robotics of it all and it, and it uh because it's such a you know if done incorrectly is such a dangerous thing to do but our team you know is smart and does it correctly but they really like the fact that that uh, it was completely repeatable and it made their their planning much safer honestly exactly yeah this and is one of my favorite things to oh, sorry uh, it's one of my favorite things to see in the in one of my favorite things to see in this in the behind the scenes uh videos is those cranes with the fire the flames shooting out and the actors responding to sort of just this like robotic arm with flame that eventually will have a dragon attached to it and i mean like i i was watching the the making of for this episode and you've got this great rig that you made for Viserion so that the flame would sort of spill out of the wounds of the dragon can you talk a little bit about how you made that yeah, there was uh, there are a couple of places that uh, have been established on uh, Viserion since he was originally harpooned uh, by the Night King last year. Actually, season six was it six or seven? Seven. Seven. Was seven. seven. Yeah. Sorry, it's been one long seven year long year. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, and then he, he got heavily damaged in the fight with Drogon last night, and also Rhaegal. Uh Actually, Rhaegal, I think, is the one who tore his after his face off. So. You know, we have a digital model of, of uh, that was created um, for damaged Viserion, and uh, we were able to scale that and get it 3D printed, those areas where the fire would interact, uh, you know, with his surface. And then, uh, and then uh, as we do, we pre-animated his action, and then uh, our, our geniuses, our, our virtual, what would you call Kaya? A virtual supervisor. Yeah. Uh, they uh, transferred the axes of motion to a robotic arm that we had access to, and uh, and so and then Sam Conway and his team piped it with with uh, uh, gas and fire, and we just went through a very long menu of uh, of you know bits of business during the the three cutbacks to uh, actually five cutbacks to Viserion and John in the courtyard, and just rolled those things off. And uh, and it really worked great. And, you know, you could see how well the fire interacted with the dragon and, and you know, how, um, you know, it was it was a bit uh, uh, elaborate for what the element is, but there, we, there was so much of it and it was pretty close to camera and I think it really worked well. 
And then what's the process of coloring the, the fire blue or, or the or the wildfire green? How does that work? Um, the, uh, the, the, the blue color we established last year, and actually uh, uh, one of our uh, DPs, Greg Middleton, uh, created an interactive look when, uh, when Viserion is blasting the wall. And there's a practical uh, piece of set with uh, little crow's nest that uh, Tormund and Barrack are in. And uh, he created, a, a, you know, using a programmed um, light panels and different gelling, uh, different colors, and that it goes at a really fast uh, cadence, so it, it almost has an electrical quality. So when, uh, when, you know, we shot the fire the same way that we always do, um, but then, you know, we started experimenting with the different values of the fire and, and you know, turning uh, the orange color into those uh, those different hues that were represented in the interactive, and then we added you know luminance adjustments and just played with it until it had until the fire itself had the same electrical quality that uh, that the uh, interactive did, and so uh, you know it's just in the digital intermediate step, which we call DI, um, uh, and even before that in compositing. Um, you know, we just shifted the colors over, and it took a little while for the vendors to to get the the the, the knack of it. But once they did, it really adds so much in a, in a very different feel than the orange fire. Uh, you want to talk about the wildfire? The wild, well, the wildfire was basically photographed um, as fire, and uh, and mats were created for it so that we could color it in DI. It was really important to the guys in, uh, in season two when we did the Battle of Blackwater that, um, uh, that the green fire play a prominent role because it's so iconic in the, in the mythos of, uh, of King's Landing. Um, but then there was also a concern, of course, well, you know, obviously we don't want it to look hokey. And, and so one of the, the, sort of rules that we came up with at the time was that the explosion of the fire of the wildfire itself would have the green hue and that would be dialed in uh, in di and then any subsequent fires that would be created as a result of the explosion would play as traditional real orange fire so um, it had its role but then it didn't you know endure for uh, the balance of the scene, and and that was um, partially, uh, you know, fear-based, <laughs> but uh, but ultimately um, served the story well, and uh, and we could focus on the explosion without then having a question where you know where is this green fire coming from? Right, exactly. And then I'm curious about you know, so you're working with this army of the dead in this episode, and obviously you've got some guys in prosthetics some and more prosthetics than than not stuff like that that you're gonna have to go in and fill in the digital you know digitally fill in the green bits on their bodies and stuff like that um but then but then you also have you've got to have like a digital enhancement of that because i saw that swarm of the dead and i know you didn't do just guys for that so how do you match the movements of you know the actual actors that you're doing and these uh added cg uh whites that you're creating here yeah, there's a couple of ways. We uh, we, we got some uh, motion control suits, and Steve will remember what the technology is called. It's uh, it's it's called the Movin suit, and uh, and it's a 
Uh, basically a jumpsuit that has a variety of uh, tracking markers on it and, and cameras that are um, set up in a space that's called a volume so that wherever the suit is in this volume, uh, they're able to read the movements of certain limbs. And depending on how many um, sensors you have on it, it, it you know, can narrow down to how uh, specific the movements are. But ultimately, uh, it, it was sort of a, a less exotic version of motion capture, um, you know, kind of almost a poor man's version yeah. of motion capture. I mean, we've gone as basic as put four or five cameras around a bunch of stunt guys and have them climb around and jump on objects or fight each other. Um, you know, and and sometimes we just use that footage and send it to the vendors. We sync it up so that they can see the same action from all different points of view, and then they rotomate it with their with their digital models. So that's a laborious way to do it, but it does work. Um, and, and that's how we started when when we first did uh, in season four when we we did the first battle where um, whites were you know going after Bran and Jojen as they were. Um, uh, trudging right. through the north, um, it was uh, you know four different um, whites that were more skeletal based that were wearing green suits, and this was all Joe's um, concoction. Well, yeah, the idea was uh, to be production friendly so that the fight could be uh, treated the same. We still were doing this up, up through this season, um, so that the, the the fights could be choreographed with the stunt guys and photographed the usual way. Um, and then, you know, just we'd shoot a couple of extra background plates and then uh, the green is, uh, is removed and the skeletal parts are put in. But when they're completely skeleton and you saw some of them climbing up the walls of Winterfell last night, for example, or as you say, when the whites first attack and they, the, the big tidal wave comes out of the darkness in a couple of different angles, um, you know, some of that is computer simulations. Um, but, you know, when, when there's just too many limbs and too many, too much to uh, animate uh, a joint by joint, then you sort of let right. the, you per the computer parameters and let the computer do it. And that's a, that's a software called Massive. So when you have a swarm of, of whites like that, how important is it that each one is like um, individuated? How do, you, how do you make sure that it looks like a, a swarm of, of different moving things and, and not something that... Um, you know, looks too repetitive or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, the the best example of that uh, this year was when the whites were swarming on the dragon um, after yeah. he came down and saved John, and um, and that's a very very tricky thing because each each white has at least five five uh, joint uh, positions. Made, you know, I'd say five, and then they're all interacting with each other and they're interacting with the surface of the dragon and the dragon's moving. So uh, you know, you work with points of contact. And, you know, and, and one of the things, you know, the vendors would send us passes that they thought were largely successful because you put in parameters and then you see, you know, you cook it and then you see what you get. And, you know, there was some crazy behavior from some of the whites. They're passing through each other. Or they're disappearing into the dragon or they're just doing, you know, you know, exorcism kind of stuff. So so we had to just go through and weed out the, the weirdos pretty much. And then the ones that... <laughs> The ones that survived are the ones that you saw. And then they were uh, textured with photography of our real whites that, you know, the, the ones that Barry and, 
Barry Gower and his team did the prosthetics on and, and the costume department costumed, and then we lit them the same way. So, you know, we went through quite a lot of uh, quite a few steps to make sure that they looked like the the guys who were in camera. We set up a uh, we set up a station that's uh, called a photogrammetry sort of a cyber scanning type station, and basically it's a tent where you can go and stand on a on a on a mark, and there are hundreds of uh, high resolution still cameras um, pointing at that mark, so that every square inch of an individual can be photographed and and that can be the basis of a 3D model. For and some you, reason, Steve and I never went in there and had action figures uh, of ourselves made. I really regret that. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's true there are no action figures of us, but we can hand sculpt something out of, out of you know, leftover donuts in the kitchen. <laughs> but, but they're very lifelike, oddly enough. But you can, you can move through, you know, hundreds of individuals uh, in a day because you just walk in, stand on your mark, cop a T-pose, and hit fire, and, uh, and it flashes a picture that can then produce uh, a model. And, and we had a team, uh, a company called Clear Angle out of London, that, uh, that was our uh, uh, maestro of that, our maester of that, uh, and then those <laughs> models can be, um, they can, and, and the textures, the the photographed images can be the basis of the uh, individual creatures that are climbing on the back of the dragon or or participating in the swarm so that, you know, they can be very highly customizable to the needs of your scene, your production, your, your cast. Is there um when when doing this particular episode where you've got an army of the dead, you've got a giant white, you've got three dragons, you've got the you know the white walkers, all of this. Is there um a problem you encountered that um you maybe thought was insurmountable and you figured out a way to solve it? Um, well, there was a moment. But where... besides, how are we going to do all of this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, the, the, the <laughs> all of it. Yeah. <laughs> the trickiest particular problem is when we had a, a shot um, that was, you know, bought and the and the, everybody wanted it in the show, and it turned out schedule wise that we had to shoot the the camera on a crane. We had to shoot the background before we shot the foreground action, um, and that was that was really weird. So it's like tying your shoe, you know, with a shoelace before you own the shoe. So. Uh, so we had to. Uh, there's a lot of steps to it, but ultimately, um, we used we threw technology at it and um, had the actor fly in the Ian White who plays the giant. We uh, the production flew in from London, and he just sort of mimed his performance that he would be doing for real six months later. And we did the uh, you know the multiple cameras, and then they made a, a CG model that acted the way he did. And then when we got to set. Um, there was a, a piece of equipment called uh, uh, NCAM. NCAM. Yeah. So that allowed, uh, it was just a, a, some a, a stuff stuck to the camera that allowed the camera operators to see that digital model, uh, you know, as stuck to the ground in the set. So as far as they were concerned when they were operating, the, you know, the crane and the camera, there was a 15-foot giant standing in, you know, in and, uh, you know, in the set with the real actors. And so they were able to shoot him the same way they shot them. 
and then uh, and then we played that motion back as a motion control move when we had Ian in you know several months later in his full costume and uh, and he you know did his same action again but it was just kind of a weird cart before the horse way of of doing it but we we did have the technology to make it happen. So we we sort of workshopped it with uh, Ian and uh, Miguel and Fabian, where Ian uh, went through his performance where he lifts up uh, Liana Mormont is the is the moment mm-hmm. we're talking about, and, right. and so we, we had a you know a scale half scale Liana dummy that he could pick up and interact with, and while you know they were workshopping it, we actually shot it. And then did this rotomation technique where we basically copy his movements and created a 3D uh, version of him that we could then plug into the computer and bring out to the set. And so this 3D positional tracking gizmotronic called NCAM was attached to the camera. And so once you map out what the set is and you attach the equipment to the camera, it knows where the camera is looking in 3D space, and then you can plug in the animation of the creature, in this case, our giant, and uh, uh, rather than us having to uh, map out for the camera operator a very particular, very esoteric and difficult-to-follow move so that the shot could be assembled later, we actually played back the, the performance, and they could be in the set with it. So it's as if you have your monster in the room with you and and you can follow it with your camera um, and see it on the screen as if it's really there. And, and, you know, that, that is called Simulcam and it's been used before on, on other kinds of projects, but uh, was a first for us and made it very efficient and easy to solve that potentially impossible problem. Because the alternative would have been we would need to have recreated the move completely in CG and had to create the environment and all of the oh, people man. in it. Uh, yeah. and, and the environment would not have been necessarily problematic, but all of the extras running through while the craziness was going on and Liana having to do her thing, Bella doing her thing. you know. And then it's a whole other story how we got Bella in his hand, which was uh, quite a... Uh, a challenging virtual um, cinematography uh, feat. So I was, watch- I was watching a about l- it. Yeah. <laughs> have another half hour. Well, I mean, I was watching, um, you know, they went into it on the making of that they released on YouTube. And so you get to see like Bella Ramsey in this like green rig that she's being held up in the air. And then you get to see Ian holding this little green mannequin. So and sort of like, um, but the process of knitting those two together, that that feels like sort of digital mastery. I mean, is that is that like uh, easier than it looks or harder than it looks to to put those two performances together? I mean, I think the fact that we shot, uh, we figured it out ahead of time and shot as much as we did made the end result easier than it might have been if you just winged it and threw it at the at the vendor. You know, in this case, it was Weta Digital, which is uh, Peter Jackson's company in New Zealand, very well right. known. Um, and you know, in the in their in the pre-Hobbit days, they were very much they approached these things very much the way we were approaching uh, Thrones which is to shoot a whole bunch of stuff, you know, and then they threw high technology at it. That's what we're doing. But, uh, you know, so we were working with the right people who knew how to 
you know, knit it together, but, you know, we did shoot everything correctly. So it wasn't, so, you know, it was a, it was a, a much easier task for them than it might've been. Our, uh, our secret weapons in this case were, uh, Casey shots, S C H O T Z and, uh, Kaya Jabbar, J A B B A R. And they were virtual, our virtual supervisors. And, uh, um, it, it's really amazing what they've done to be able to, uh, help us put these pieces together and they oversaw all of the uh, motion base work and the motion, uh, the, the motion control fire. Um, yeah. I mean, these, these, you know, these guys had just finished Dumbo with, with Tim Burton and then, you know, and, and went off to star Wars and avatar. And, you know, so that's the level of technical talent who are, you know, who block out huge chunks of their life to come and work with us. In Belfast, <laughs> right. and, and we're quite lucky for that. And one of, one of they're, the they're busy, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, everyone's crazy busy, and and sort of one of our one of our secrets to success, and and how we're able to turn things around relatively fast, um, compared with uh, some of our feature brothers and sisters, is we just do an insane amount of planning, and we we map this stuff out so well. And we have a um, a very in-depth playbook that is, you know, mostly schematics and diagrams and charts. And, you know, for any given shot, the, the potentially dozens of pieces that are needed um, to be photographed um, and captured, whether it's on the ground on the first unit or as an element shoot later on. Um, was really our uh, our ace in the hole, and and we had a fellow named Eric Carney, who was one of the principals of the third floor, and started with us years ago as a previs supervisor, and who grew uh, into one of our absolute champion onset supervisors, and he was um, on the ground for our 57 nights of shooting with the playbook and just making sure that everything was captured as it needed to be captured and then thinking on his feet as um, the the needs of the set changed and didn't allow us to get X, Y, or Z, but now, you know, how do we do it anyway? And uh, and so it's having this extraordinary team was really our our, our way to get through the four and sometimes five units that were shooting simultaneously to oh, wow. you know kill kill not just this episode but the other five yeah well and i'm curious in this episode we see the end of the night king and the white walkers and this is this is a this is a, an effect that you guys have worked on and mastered sort of perfected over the years like i remember the first you know, like the evolution of what the White Walkers look like until this sort of perfected form. But what is it like to say goodbye to an effect that you've worked on uh, for so long? Oh, it's okay. (laughs) 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 No, you know, I mean, the the season has required us. uh, We, you know, worked most days of the week of the year, you know, until we got to uh, from back here to L.A., and then our our average week was six day weeks and frequently seven, so you know I mean, and they really really needed it. And this year too, uh, the first season that I didn't supervise all of the episodes, just be- because mm-hmm. when we added up at the very beginning of of uh, season eight, um, you know we added up uh, guesstimated how many shots, and it was 
heading toward twice the number of of season seven, and we we skated in on our stomachs on season seven. So uh, so Stefan Fangmeyer, um, who had worked with us before and has a very rich resume, uh, came on and did uh, episodes one, two, and four. So and then I did three, which aired last night, five and six, which is the finale. So um, so anyway, that's yeah. So it's it's um, you know it. I feel like we've done justice to to everything that we've been asked to create, and uh, you know I can't. I mean I can't imagine now, but you know it's funny. Every year you think there's no way this can get bigger, and every year you know it 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 you know as Steve says it doubles like the it doubles in size like the dragons, and uh, and I think that we would have all just exploded literally you know like the Night King if if uh, if there were ten more shots asked of us so. We're all going to go to Betty Ford and recover, and then uh, and then uh, see what happens next. It's been a series, um, you know. It, season eight has been a a season of lasts. You know, it's oh my god, it's the last production meeting. Oh my god, it's our last shoot. Oh my god, it's the last time we're gonna, you know, we're we're gonna be on the edge of a cliff, you know, yeah. flying in a sideways rainstorm, you know, with a drone trying to get the shot. Um, and of course it's, uh, you know, after being together for so many years, it's, there is a, uh, certainly a, uh, a touch of nostalgia and family. And, you know, we've been really lucky to have such an amazing, insane crew, not just in production and, and, and in, in the hands of the camera operators and the grips and the lighting, which has all been very true. But also, you know, we've been very fortunate to have and Bernie Caulfield and, and Chris Newman, you know, um, producers who really understand and, and want to do everything in their power to support their team uh, and empower their team. You know, and then in our visual effects team, it's, you know, we're a family. And uh, at this point, the family is uh, nearing the end and you know, the kids are going off to college, and it's a... Uh, the grandparents are retiring. <laughs> Not quite yet, but, uh, but feeling like it. And, uh, you know, so the last, um, you know, we just had our uh, last DI session, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a it's big a, deal. There's a lot of hugging it out with everybody, yeah. you know. I mean, it's, you know, you've really... That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's something that I, w- I wanted to sort of convey to people who are listening is like, you know, I asked I asked you guys if you wanted to chat a couple weeks ago and you were like, no, no way. We are in it. We are working on the season. We cannot lift our heads up to do this, which is totally understandable. But I think people don't understand the timeline of sort of like when you turn things around versus uh, when we see them on the screen. So like how up to the last minute are you ever working on a on a digital effect before it goes live on hbo yeah they feel like they're minutes apart but they're not i mean it's what two weeks three weeks i mean i mean the 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 schedule is meant to be completely all in and done 17 weeks to air but we have shots on uh uh in episode five that are uh downloading as we speak and episode six so you know, we're at, we're at the very last um, bits of polishing and uh, you know and fine tuning. So it's not like there's uh, any jeopardy at this point in this season that uh, 
you know, we we're, we're gonna it. we're gonna miss it. We've but, had other seasons that but, were much more exciting. But there, yeah, there, you know, there were seasons where you know we literally slid into home on our faces with the, you know, the shots on a hard drive in our hands with somebody racing to take it away. And if from we were us. thirty minutes later, it wouldn't air in France. You know, <laughs> yeah, poor France. <laughs> but. Uh, you know, it's uh, it 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 is uh, it is a uh, it is a high stress, challenging uh, environment, and and we don't make it easy. I mean, with all of the, the our insistence on shooting everything, um, you know, it puts a it puts a, a burden sort of on on production and on us, on, on we ourselves. But it is it is worth it, and we have the right people to do it, and production enables us to do it. So uh, so we're sort of beholden to the end product and to, you know, the fans and the people at, you know, HBO and just ourselves really to do the best work we can because it's so much work. Even if, even if we did a bad job, it'd still be a lot of work. So we might as well try to do a good job. Are you guys working on the, on the spinoff on the, on the prequel series that they're doing? No, that's happening uh, simultaneously. Actually, they're already in in pre-production. A woman that we both have known for a long time, Betsy Patterson is the, uh, effect supervisor on that and she's back in Belfast and, and the same stomping grounds that we occupied for the last seven and eight years um, and uh, and they are creating very much their own thing you know and they're attacking it their own way and uh, and we say more power to them so there isn't like a shared library or of like of visual effects or sounds or anything like that that goes between the two projects. The sounds there might be, but yeah. but the uh, you know the shots are so specific, and then what we shoot for the shots is so so specific that you know there may be models that they could you know, dragon models. There may be some things that they can you know repurpose, but not a lot, honestly. We have a uh, we have a a rich library of assets that we've created, you know, down through the ages, digi- digital assets, yeah. whether it's, you know, ships or, Both you castles. know, King's Landing or Castle Black or the Godswood Tree and yeah. that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, what we don't really know anything about the story or the mythos or where it's going, but, uh, you know, we have uh, our absolute right hand, left hand, and most of our brain cells in between is a fellow named Adam Chazen, who's our associate producer. And and he's busy as we speak, you know, working on a legacy project to archive all of the digital assets that uh, exist from our, uh, from our uh, little experience here. And, uh, and, and pass them on wherever they'll be valuable. And, uh, you know, and we, we we imagine that at some point along the way somebody will call and say, "Hey, how did you do X, Y, or Z?" And you know, we're of course thrilled to right. help out. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, well, you thank know, you I so think... much for the time. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that I, I did get a call last year um, uh, when we were prepping season eight, and it was uh, from one of the supervisors at Marvel asking how we did something and. You know, we're all watching each other's work and trying to, uh, you know, figure out how each other is doing things. And, you know, when you can't figure it out, you just pick up the phone and call. And, uh, you know, because uh, we're all geeks and fans and workaholics, and it's really it's nice to uh, to pick each other's brains because, you know, we're all doing the same work. The Lord's I work. I love that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I will have my eyes peeled for... 
uh, Ice Zombie Dragons in a Marvel movie. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and thank you guys so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. It was fun talking. <laughs> Well, that is it for our discussion of The Long Night. We will be back next week to talk about whatever it is. Episode four is called We Don't Know. Uh, this episode of this podcast was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez. Richard, until next week, where can people find you? Uh, Cersei's having like a small pool party, so I'm going to go to that for a bit, I think. Um, but I'll also be tweeting at Rylaws and writing at VF.com. And I should mention... If listeners of this podcast want to hear Joanna and I talk about another sort of big ending thing involving Starks, you can listen to last week's episode of Little Gold Men, where we discuss Avengers Endgame. Um, but until we talk about Game of Thrones again, Joanna, where can people find you? Well, I will be, I'm not invited to the pool party, but I will be downstairs in Kyburn's lab because he's ki- cooking up something like really <laughs> creepy. He's barbecuing? <laughs> yeah. Kybert, Kybert on the barbecue. Uh, right. a barbecue Kybert. Nope, it doesn't work. All right. Anyway, I will be there. Uh, it works. It works if you believe it, Joanna. <laughs> I'll be there. You find me on vanityfair.com. Follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. Yes, please do listen to that episode of Little Gold Men where we had Griffin Newman and the Blank Check podcast on to talk about Avengers Endgame and it was great. Uh, and we will see you all next week. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts.